The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney, certified information privacy professional, and she's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. And she sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection. And she's also a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and so many other shows. To learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Evening, Mari. Good evening. We have a very interesting guest tonight. He's a great expert on privacy from the Silicon Valley. Oh, the Valley of Technology. And he is terrific. I, I've read his articles and I've seen a lot about him. Got a chance to speak with him briefly and I'm so excited he's joining us. Let me tell you a little bit about Robert Brownstone, who is the law, is the law and technology director at Fenwick and West, a, a 250 attorney Silicon Valley based law firm specializing in providing comprehensive services to technology and life sciences clients of national and international promise, prominence. Robert advises clients on electronic discovery, electronic information management, compliance and retention, destruction policies and protocols. He also regularly collaborates with clients and colleagues to assess and implement computer support solutions for litigation and transactions. He's a nationwide speaker and writer on many law and technology issues, including privacy law. Robert is frequently quoted in the press as an expert on electronic information. And last year, he was named by Law & Politics magazine as a Northern California super lawyer and was featured in the cover story of the August issue of the ABA Law Practice magazine. That's where I saw him. So I'm so thrilled that you've joined us. And uh, please... How are you doing up there? Good. Thank you very much for having me. It's the honor's all mine. Oh, well, this should be really a lot of fun. So tell us, really, how did you get to be in, you know, such a techie? How did you get to know so much about technology and privacy? Well, that's a good question. I had had a fairly long career. I'd been out of law school about 13 years at the turn of the century, and I had been a law professor, a program director, and a business litigator and the firm where I've been for the last seven years was looking for someone who had a combination of backgrounds and interests that, that kind of matched with mine. They were looking to automate a lot of what their litigators did, so they wanted an experienced litigator. And the goal of my mentor here, Bill Fenwick, who was one of the founders, was to take an experienced lawyer who knew how to learn and teach and cram as much uh, computer software and learning into his or her head as possible. So I was the <laughs> guinea pig. 
goodness. So basically, the the firm decided to go with Bill's wacky idea of taking uh, basically uh, taking a bunch of information and getting someone who could learn it, process it, and and then create uh, tools for the lawyers because our our client base tends to be very high tech. So the the firm was trying to to keep raising the bar uh, because at, at the behest of our of the its clients, they were looking for uh, someone to kind of carry the ball and and proselytize to the the rest of the lawyers here. And it's kind of just gone from there. My interest got peaked in a lot of issues, uh, particularly by Bill, but also by the chief technology officer here, Matt Kessner, who like me is a re- uh, sort of a recovering lawyer. He's completely recovered. Uh, I keep getting pulled back in, but uh, I was given the luxury of trying to learn as much as I could about databases, software, and the internet, and then for in part to develop tools that use uh, all of those uh, kinds of uh, software and, and programs, et cetera, to, to help our lawyers uh, work faster, better, stronger, and, and also ultimately we went out, uh, the goal was kind of a three-part approach to win over whatever lawyers within the firm were not yet committed to being very high-tech. And then the second level was to take that out on extranet sites and make make it very easy for uh, our lawyers and paralegals to create secure websites where we could share files with our clients uh, and share them with varied degrees of access rights and protections. So different uh, lawyers on other sides of transactions and and litigations could come in and, and see some of the information and not the rest of it. And then the latest step over the last couple of years has been to integrate the the knowledge I and some of my other colleagues have on the technology side, integrate that into our, our legal services, because as you, you are well aware, more than most people, and as I'm sure a lot of listeners are aware, uh, there really isn't any aspect of any profession at this point that isn't touched by, by computer technology and by information and how it's kept and where it goes and its whole life cycle. So uh, I'm really a hybrid at this point of a lawyer and an IT person, and the advice I provide clients and all the outreach I do in, in writing and, and speaking uh, combines the, the two. So really it started uh, seven years ago when I came to this firm, and, and this firm has a unique history of valuing technology and also representing not just big software companies but all uh, up-and-comers and many of the big clients were uh, startups, so to speak, when, when they first came to our firm as clients years ago. So that it's just kind of my, my view of constantly learning uh, and teaching kind of fit with what the firm was looking for. Well, you are right in the right place at the right time, that is for sure. I mean, now when I see all this with the electronic filing and all the craziness that, that is involved in the technology, even in the court system, you know, how do you protect it? Uh, you know, h- how is it that you can, you know, in discovery, are you going to give somebody everything? You know, I don't litigate anymore. I'm a full-time mediator, but all my friends who are still litigating are going, oh, my gosh. You know, you ask for discovery, and you get these files that many are unintelligible, you know? Right. So and, it's, and it's a real in, insane time that we're going through. Right. What's happened, What one of the interesting things that's happened to me here is I team up with uh, often most frequently with someone who's been in IT his whole career, my teammate Kevin Moore, and he's become very interested in the law side of things, particularly regarding information security and e-discovery. 
and I've become uh, over the years more and more and more interested in the technology. So we try to uh, do the mind meld, so to speak, uh, for each other. We we ping each other all day with things we're reading and learning, and then when we when we talk to clients and meet with clients and advise them, we do it together as a unit. So we. So he isn't playing a lawyer on TV, and I'm not playing an IT person on TV. We feel comfortable that we have each other rely on. Yeah, the on. dog and pony show, right? Right. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I mean, I just did a program uh, for a bunch of lawyers and judges, and it was on privacy issues, and they were talking about the fact that these judges could not really, you know, figure out. Uh, they were very worried about what would be, you know, available in these databases and, and what could be kept private and what wouldn't be kept private and, and how were they were going to rule on discovery issues with regard to, you know, what's really fair and what kinds of tricks attorneys would play on each other with regard to giving them, you know, so much information at once that they could not even look at it during the discovery time. Right. Do you want a little, my little view of the history of e-discovery law as it's evolved over yeah, the last five sure, to ten years? Well, sure. it's, it, from what I can, best I can have been able to to formulate, about ten, ten years ago and all the way up till about five, six years ago, a lot of large companies went into court and, and the judges were not up to speed at all on the technology, with, with some exceptions, of course. And many times their lawyers were able to convince the judges, well, gee, Your Honor, there's just too much here. It's just too complicated. It's not fair to force us to sift through all this. Uh, at some point, the judges realized that that just wasn't the case. As processor speed got faster, as chips got able to hold much more data, uh, then it kind of swung the other way for a while. So let's say from 2001 to 2002, there was indeed a period like you described where the judges were realizing, well, wait a minute, first of all, the, if a company chooses to join the modern world and thus decides to have databases, websites, and other forms of storage of electronic information, well, too bad that it might be uh, a big endeavor to pull that up, so to speak, or to retrieve it to produce. Then the next phase, though, is that the judges started saying, in effect, well, if the information's there, it can be produced. So that did, I think, lead and probably still leads in some instances to to some entities doing what you describe, which aptly, which is the, the modern version of the, the document dump that, right. that we've all been through in litigation, anyone who's litigated. Uh, so it's it's merely an electronic version. And as you say, there often is proprietary software, uh, maybe a database or a tool that was created internally in the company. Uh, then you have to go back into court if the if the producing party wasn't uh, forthright about the need to have special software to view it. Uh, you have to go back and revisit that. So really, what's happened is in this arena, as in the privacy arena, there are whole bodies of law that have developed that are in large part very much based on understanding the technology and what it can do, what it can't do. And then there are a lot of uh, disputes that deal with the form of production, not just the volumes, but also, well, are, are we going to print things to paper and scan them for a while? And even now some courts are saying, well, that's fine. As long as you made them searchable, that's okay. Well, it, it may not be okay under the new federal rules of discovery. And, in fact, if, if a, party, a party now has the, the option, whether it's an individual uh, litigating party or a company, to, in the first instance, say, look, I want everything in native. I want Word files in Word format. I want spreadsheets in whatever spreadsheet format they're in. I don't want them printed to paper and scanned. I want to be able to use the information because what, what's come clear, as in the privacy setting, is that it's the underlying content of the information 
that is is what's producible in, in a litigation. So it's kind of there kind of been some pendulum swings, and there's still a lot of issues being hashed out. But uh, the evolution of it's been interesting, and uh, I've seen more and more judges uh, in our matters, uh, and and also in 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 panels and and out in the world who seem to be getting more and more clued into to what the underlying technology is and what it's not. And that's that's really tough to try and catch up to not only know the content and know your area of law, but now to become experts in technology. It's rough. Right. And and, and I think that I, I've really had a luxury in that all my roles have kind of been uh, here. I'm in my third role at this one firm. All my roles have been a, a, a mixture of learning uh, and teaching. In other words, in a way, they I won't say outsource because I'm part of the firm. I'm both in the IT department and, and I straddle the law side as well. But part of my duties here and all my roles have been to make sure other lawyers here are up to speed, make sure the IT people are up to speed on the law uh, so that we're all rowing uh, in the same direction. And then I do a lot of client uh, education, whether or not it, it's, it's a paying uh, gig, so to speak, a lot of clients uh, who do we do a lot of work for, they at times they want us to come in and educate them. Uh, so it's it's fun, frankly, to be able to uh, for our clients as well as that in the world try to push uh, everybody forward in, in the legal profession. Uh, and there are certainly probably a lot less lawyers at our firm than elsewhere uh, in, in kind of the luddite mode because again our client base is so high tech. But we, we're pushing, uh, we push the people that, that are not farther along, uh, and that's really, we've seen the real benefits with our clients. Uh, some clients have started out saying, oh, well, all those other law firms know this stuff, and then uh, they start talking uh, to them about backup tapes and uh, hackers and viruses and uh, the, the rules on data destruction and life cycle data, and the lawyers, I start glazing over, then we seem to get a return call saying, <laughs> you know what, we want... Uh, that team that Brownstone's on that's got those IT people on it, bring those guys over with your lawyers. That's who we want to use. So exactly. we're, we've had people here. I, I, don't, I will not take credit for realizing uh, that there was such an integration of uh, data management into law practice, but I'll certainly uh, take credit for understanding when I got here seven years ago what our, one of our, what our leaders here, Bill Fenwick and Matt Kestner in the Serena, were talking about and kind of picked up the ball and ran with it from there. Oh, yeah. We are speaking with Robert Brownstone, who is the Law and Technology Director at Fenwick & West LLP up there in Silicon Valley. Beautiful area. Okay, let's let's get to the nitty-gritty then about, since, you know, we're at the University of California, Irvine, so we've got students sitting here, many of whom are probably more techie than me. Um, and we also are, you know, being heard from 5 to 6 p.m. when people are coming home from dinner after working in, in New Port Beach and Aliso Viejo, which is also a little tiny Silicon Valley. So we have a lot of people who are dealing with technology issues. They're dealing with fears of things like security breaches. So what are, let's talk about what are some of the major sets of laws that require companies to safeguard their individual customers' private information? Yeah, sure. There, there are several. Unfortunately, at this point, it is still a hodgepodge and an ever-growing hodgepodge. But on the federal side, uh, laws passed by Congress, the major sets of statutes are uh, HIPAA, which deals with uh, health insurance and, and other kinds of medical records. Right. Anything, any information that, that relates to individuals' medical uh, records or coverage or, or treatment. There is the 
Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, which is directed only at financial institutions, but anyone who has a bank account or a brokerage account, uh, the, those entities that uh, provide those to customers have obligations to safeguard personally identifiable information and to have uh, under FTC, Federal Trade Commission regulations, uh, under GLB, or as it's known, they have to have safeguards in place. Uh, another uh, rule that, I, that people are probably less familiar with, there is something called the Fair Credit Reporting Act that's been in place on the federal level for a number of years. But a few years back, there was a set of laws that were added to it by Congress uh, called the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act, or FACTA. And it's got something called a disposal rule that the FTC put in place pursuant to FACTA. And what that says is that you, you need to think about what's going to happen with information at the end of its life. In other words, when a company has obtained information from a background check or consumer report uh, on an individual, and it has that information, whether it's in electronic form or paper form, it can't just take a hard drive or take a set of disks or CDs or big box of paper and throw them in a dumpster. It's got to actually get rid of them, and there are guidelines provided by the STC, FTC, I should say, yes. as to how to uh, wipe uh, with the, the draw, a hard drive. And there's sensitivity there. That this is going to sound like a joke, but it's not. There's sensitivity there to companies that might not have the ability or the manpower or woman power to sit there and, and go over every hard drive 14 times with software to make sure it's deleted. You actually can smash uh, media with a hammer. Yes. The exact quote is, uh, you can cheaply destroy media by simply smashing the material with a hammer. So there's, there's HIPAA, FACTA, GLB. On the state level, there is a more than a hodgepodge. It's really a patchwork of uh, 33 different state legislatures have come up with uh, their own respective statutory schemes related to uh, notices of security breach. There is no federal law in place in that area at this point. Although uh, there's some legislation pending right yeah, now. Yeah, there's a, there's a fair amount of legislation that's pending. Some of it's been pending for a couple of years, some for less. Uh, in terms of the state uh, rules, essentially they, are, they, are, they do target identity theft, which I know is uh, a key issue for you and I know for, for your listeners. Uh, they, they target it in the sense that they provide for consequences when individuals personally identifiable information, meaning a social security number and or account information name and or any other information that when, when coupled could, could be used to, to steal people's assets and or identity. They say that if you don't, essentially if you don't encrypt the data and you're an entity that possesses it, uh, the personal information, that you need to notify uh, the, the affected individuals when there is a loss or a hack that, that leads to that data uh, in, or that information being grabbed by someone. Right, right. So what, what do you advise your clients with regard to encryption? I know that's a huge issue. Everybody goes online and they look for the little lock when they're, for example, buying something on the Internet, whether it's QVC or whatever, they look for the little lock, and that tells them, that the information is going to be scrambled when it's sent from one from their computer to the uh, company that they're buying from. What about the data at rest? What what is happening when computers are hacked and they're not encrypted? What why is this happening? Why aren't they encrypting? Well, the, there there are a lot of issues, and I guess to kind of take, take pulling back for a second and looking at it in a broad sense. 
what we what we tell our clients uh, in various settings is that there really is a three part approach to dealing with information management, particularly when it's electronic. And one approach is to really think through your policies uh, and and make sure that the policies are real instead of just writing something up because there's a law that requires you to have a document in place. In fact, we tell our clients, you know, you're worse off if you write up something that, that doesn't bear any resemblance to reality. So in terms of the three-pronged approach, the first approach is to have policies uh, that are real, that have protocols that are jo- and policies that are jointly uh, pulled together by not just by the, the, the lawyer, uh, not just by us if there is no in-house lawyer, but also involving the in-house IT person or the outsourced IT person. Uh, I call it, uh, when I do presentations, I have what I call the Kumbaya slide, uh, it's a Toshiba ad. Uh, it's a photo of a bunch of geeky-looking lawyers and geeky-looking IT people all holding hands, singing "Kumbaya." <laughs> They're not really singing "Kumbaya." That's my take on it. Uh, but basically, it's it's the you you cannot just take the approach. Well, lawyers are from Mars, IT are from Venus. We're just <laughs> going to write up something that's legally compliant. Uh, we urge legal and IT to get together and think through what they're doing. So one approach is having policies that are in place that are real. That, that aren't just uh, a bunch of, go- of, of uh, legal uh, jargon and references to, to laws. The second is to uh, make sure you're going to educate uh, your employees on, on what, what is, what's to be done, that what you expect of them and what protections are to be taken uh, as to information. Uh, and, then the th- and then the third approach is, uh, it's, it's, aside from education, is actually following through and having and, and making sure that, that people are careful and having consequences uh, within the client for that. So that's kind of the big picture. In terms of uh, a major source of a lot of breaches uh, that we all read about in the press and hear about on the news is, um, relates to mobile devices. And there are a lot of different philosophies in, in different workplaces on how to deal with that. Uh, in terms of encrypting laptops, from, from a kind of a, a selfish standpoint, uh, if data is encrypted, typically the, the, you are exempt from having to notify uh, customers, or not just customers, but anyone whose information, is, uh, any consumers or individuals whose information is taken. Or even uh, employees. So, right, so, exactly. So one issue is laptops uh, really should be encrypted. There, there have been concerns over the, the years that the, the, the speed is slowed down, and, and that's really gone away over time. I mean, we encrypt our laptops here for our attorneys, and we, we do urge clients uh, to, to consider that uh, as well. I mean, the, the harder thing, frankly, is, is uh, USB keys, iPods, uh, all those kind of information, and that's where you get into the training. Um, and I, I hate to put it this way, but if you, I mean, it's, you can appeal to people's uh, altruism and also to their selfishness, but from an individual employee level, whenever whether it's in the employment setting or the, the e-discovery preparedness setting or information security, we really urge people to, to understand that, the kind of, that they, they need to think more broadly. I mean, I kind of listed out some, some rules that apply to different kinds of information, but we, we all go to doctors, right? right. We all uh, are customers of banks and other financial institutions. Uh, and also, whether you're, 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 you're company, in our case it's, it's our clients or it's our internal client, our own law firm, but whether your company actually is in one of those fields or not, there are many different ways that you come in contact with people's information. Anyone who does sales over the web or in person, 
uh, gets people's perhaps their credit card information and other information. Uh, you mentioned the example of universities. Uh, I just did a presentation uh, on an audio broadcast to a, a number of uh, higher education institutions all over the country. Uh, schools have traditionally had a lot of information on a lot of people, and still do because they've got uh, they've got a lot of transients. They, in other words, they've got visiting professors, visiting students, incoming students every year, outgoing students who go into an alumni database every year. So part of the education process, and, and it really is a, a, a retraining or restructuring of people's behavior, so to speak. And I know that sounds ominous, but it's kind of teaching people to look out for, for each other because we're all in this together. Uh, and, and wherever you reside, and we think about it in, in terms of our representations, if we're doing a lawsuit, and whether, whether, even if our client is an entity, and even if the, law, if the client's not a bank and it's not a hospital, uh, we may be getting people's individual information. We may be getting their personnel files. We may be getting a whole host of information. The way uh, information is gathered in in lawsuits uh, or in transactions, frankly, uh, it, these days is you 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 go by the individual. We call them custodians. You go to their the you, you make up a list. You go to people's email. Uh, typically. Uh, you, you have a, an agreement in place or policy in place that, the, it, that anything sent on the company's email system belongs to the employer. So there's a broad swath of information that's grabbed. Now, we as the law firm or any outside service provider that gets that information to handle a transaction or lawsuit may have a whole host of personal information in there. So part of what we do is think about the three-pronged pronged approach. Part of what we do is is try to get clients to parse out uh, in, in a playbook or a chart where their information rests. We have a series of questions we go through with clients. I, I've increasingly, over the last couple of years, become more and more involved with clients' policy development and education. And, and I don't always do all the steps for them, but I kind of take them through a questionnaire and then draft them a chronology and urge them to follow the steps. And some of the steps involve charting out what you have. Our high-tech clients tend to be farther along than our clients in, in other uh, industries in terms of knowing what they have and where they have it, but we've all worked in, in some uh, workplaces that are very organized, and we've all worked in workplaces where, where people kind of, it's more of a free-for-all, and people are concentrating on what's in front of them rather than the big picture. But we urge people to chart out all their sources of information. Okay, what in internal websites do you have? What external uh, websites do you have out on the web? What databases do you have? What and then what are the formats of data you have? So we kind of we kind of start at, at square one, which are these are the three big goals you should have. Uh, now to start figuring out what you have and how we're going to sort it out, we we take them through uh, charting out w what kind of information they have, what what are the, all the locations, what are the formats, and then we start to sync up the different policies. I'll try to give you well, one Robert, example. Well, Robert, let me just ask Sorry. you something, though. Sure. Um, I, I, it's easy when you're talking about hard drives um, in the office, but when you start talking about all of these tiny electronic devices, like you were talking about the little USB keys, right. which are so tiny, and they can hold how many gigabytes? You know, I mean, I've carried those never with sensitive information, but when I do a speaking engagement, for example, I'll bring one of those, and I put it into the computer, and it, it's really easy to do. But I'm thinking of... All these people who are working, who have access to information that they can take and, uh, and put in their pocket, or you know, or maybe it's on their uh, PDA 
or on their cell phone or many other places. When when I talk to people, and as I do, when I talk about, you know, the privacy implications at, at corporations, most of them have no idea where all this information is. It's not that easy when, when, in fact, people are taking things home. And this is what we've heard about in these security breaches. You know, some... Uh, someone who's outsourced for research takes a laptop home and it gets stolen, right? Right. And and so I think that, I mean, how do you do that with their policies? Is Are there audit well, trails or what, what do you have? Well, there, there's, there's uh, I, I, I've seen some that, some policies that, in, that, that involve encrypting laptops and, and having rules on who can, uh, who can, uh, get into certain data. I mean, so again, if you start at square one, what do we have? The next step is, well, who should be accessing this information? Right, I've right. also heard of software that can, if you decide, okay, these three employees have to be able to download or export information from databases into a spreadsheet, save it on the laptop, and take it away. There is software I, I've read about that can take whole columns and put dummy information in it. Right. So that the, the employer... I'm sorry, the employee can go home and work on some of the columns, but not on other columns. There is software that can actually at least track uh, when, what people are, when people are using uh, USBs and when they're putting information on it. I mean, you, it's probably the, the, the one acknowledgement I have to make and that most clients end up coming to pretty quickly is it's impossible to monitor what everyone's doing all the time unless you go to onerous uh, uh, tasks, such as if you, you put glue in the, the USB ports, I mean, then you're going to have a lot of angry employees. Right, right. I mean, people are just too mobile these days. But what you can do is you can limit, some people call it a need to know, you can limit who can get to certain information. Right. Uh, and uh, you can have, uh, I mean, it, it's hard. You, a lot of workplaces don't want to get too strict about these issues. Uh, but uh, encrypting laptops, like you say, is different in kind from trying to deal with the whole USB kit uh, issue. Now, PDAs, uh, the, the, the hard thing about PDAs is that there is a variety of hardware and a variety of software, depending on what, I'm, I'm not going to mention brand names, but depending on what uh, your personal digital assistant is, uh, there are different uh, issues. A lot of us uh, and a lot of people at our clients, have they have access to their work email system on their PDA. Now, what our law firm does and what I know a lot of companies do is at least so someone can't get right into the email system as soon as uh, someone's lost a PDA. Uh, if it, hopefully it's password protected. Uh, it's harder to encrypt these devices, but if you, if you uh, hopefully it's password protected. If it's not, or if someone's logged in when they, when they lose it or it's taken, uh, we have what we call a kill signal that can be sent, so there's no longer any contact to the central um, uh, email database or store right, or anything else right. back at the company. So there are practical, uh, in, in addition to setting policy and educating people on what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, uh, there are some practical software solutions uh, that you can uh, implement. You know, we did a, a show from the Data Protection Summit, which was here in Irvine, California, oh, a few months back. And we saw a lot of that different kind of masking software and limiting software of who can get in and who can't get in. It was amazing. But I thought, my gosh, how do small businesses deal with this? I mean, I know I'm, I'm a small law firm, and 
you know, what do they do to be able to keep up with this? You know, because even a tiny little office with one person can have databases that are, you know, myriad, you know, megabytes and gigabytes and all the terabytes, right? And sure. So, you know, what do you tell small businesses? They can't afford all this stuff. Well, the there has the, there has to be an appro- an overall approach to what you have and who has access and where you have it. And in addition, there there are people. Everyone uses the internet now, but there are things you can try to tell people to avoid doing so they don't expose information. In addition to the mobile devices, uh, you don't want people to be going on the uh, on all different personal websites. There was a situation um, a few years ago. Actually, last year at the Oregon uh, Department of Revenue, the Oregon uh, equivalent of the uh, IRS, where an employee was surfing pornographic sites and downloaded a photo from one of them. The photo, uh, the attachment had with it some malware that started sucking information uh, out of the the network and started pulling information on thousands of individuals. So Mm. there's certain behavior that is just plain dumb, but that unfortunately uh, people engage in. I know someone who who was an employer of a very small company and found out that uh, there was an employee that was uh, doing all kinds of things uh, on company time, and it it was creating all sorts of problems uh, in all sorts of directions. But in terms of small companies, I mean, there is uh, encryption software is not that expensive uh, relative to where it was before. Uh, The and again, it's not just a selfish issue to comply with the law. If a hard drive is encrypted then uh, the data cannot essentially be accessed. Uh, I mean, if, if, it, if it's someone's already in it on a password basis, they're in it. Now, there are a couple other things you can do. We have forced uh, screen savers every 20 minutes. If, if, no one, if someone doesn't touch a keyboard, right. uh, the, uh, the, the screen saver comes on, and, and I've, there's no way on any of our uh, desktop computers or, or laptops at our firm that you can reset that as an individual. Only an administrator can reset that. So if I get up from my desk, whether I'm a small com- in a small office or a big office, and, and I, I don't act affirmatively to hit Control-Alt-Delete and lock the computer, it's going to lock pretty quickly anyway, so someone will not be able to get in there. Right, and uh, then the, you have to redo your password, right, to get in. That's right, what mine, mine do that, yeah. Right, password changes. Um, Limits on what people can get into over the web. Uh, I mean, you you can enforce. Uh, you could tell people to not put work information on USBs. I know that that's difficult, but if you give them a, a laptop, uh, I don't know. There, there's not a great. There's not a great solution for every company and individual of every shape and size. But there are things that you can try to get your employees to do as best practices, and try to m- make them understand that 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 there are a lot of threats ranging from someone walking up to a screen and seeing something uh, to a, a situation I heard about from another lawyer uh, in, in another part of the country about a month ago. She said there was a situation at work where uh, someone apparently went to another employee's desk and typed something nasty to a third employee and is acute, or, or to allegedly even to himself as well. And now... The, oh, saying, like oh, cyber yeah, she, identity that right, pretended to be the that, other person. She sent me that horrible... Yeah. Uh, nasty email, and um, I mean it, it's real hard. Uh, I know someone at a small company that need, that went to remedial measures. In other words, uh, used some spyware software that tracked every click and, and every site uh, website visited uh, by the individual. But the problem with that is, it, it, I mean, it's effective. 
uh, if you put it in place before you know of a problem. The hard thing is knowing when there's a problem. But antivirus software, anti-spam software, uh, some rules on website visitation, things like that can be implemented relatively inexpensively uh, at, at companies. Where it does get harder is trying to uh, do the impossible, which is to control what, what every individual does uh, with every copy of every file. Uh, the the other issue is kind of the life cycle of information, where a lot of companies uh, don't go far enough, whether they're small or large, uh, is is kind of the, the anti-dumpster diving that I mentioned briefly right. with FACTA and things of that nature. Uh, pretty typically, uh, individuals and entities are, are oversave. Uh, they, ha- they keep more information than they need to. That's because it's gotten so small. <laughs> they can uh, keep it in such, you know, it's not like they have boxes and boxes and boxes. It's now it's in little, in their yeah, now right. it's in their files. Right, and, it's the invisible garage. Right, or they keep it, it at a yeah. place like Iron Mountain, you know, or they'll start outsourcing, you know, they outsource it to store as well, and they forget that it's even there. Yeah, there is a trend, though, and I'm seeing more and more interest from, uh, corporate clients and from government clients and from clients of all different shapes and sizes, also other companies out in the world, there is, mo- there is definitely a movement to not save everything. And that's right. a good thing in a lot of realms. Uh, it's, it's good in the e-discovery setting in the sense that there's now more of a chance to, theoretically, there will be more of a chance to get to the merits if people and companies don't save every copy and every file that, that they have because you can't do the, the dump. Uh, if you have way too right. much, but from a, uh, an but information, then you've got some. Don't you also have some laws like socks, and you have, you know, the IRS. You have certain restrictions in terms of what you can get rid of and what you can't get absolutely. rid of. Absolutely, but the the vast majority of information uh, that it, that we see and we have seen for f- over five years since we developed our electronic information management practice here is email, right. and the bulk, the vast bulk of email is not substantively related to IRS obligations right. or other retent, legal retention obligations. So what, what we advise clients to do is think of, of buckets. And there's the bucket of, uh, okay, if the, is there a category of information that has to be kept due to a legal requirement? That's one bucket. Right. Two, is, is there a bucket that, uh, is there information that, although technically speaking, it's not required under the law, well, as a business, you're going to want and, and should keep that for a certain amount of time. But then there's everything else, and that everything else, frankly, dwarfs the information that needs to be kept. Uh, certain industries, like an, an insurance company or insurance claims uh, agent's office or a broker-dealer, a big brokerage house or a small brokerage house, under... Uh, Various rules, they, they pretty much need to keep all their correspondence for several years. If it's an insurance company, theoretically, every email back and forth with a claims agent is anticipating litigation. Uh, if it's a broker dealer, there are SEC rules on retaining information for three years. But SOX, actually, other than the auditors having to keep information, Sarbanes Oxley does not really put uh, on companies uh, a, 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 a specific obligation to save information for a specific period of time. What it does do is criminalize destruction of information when uh, a company uh, or an individual knows or should know that there is a, a government proceeding coming up or a lawsuit coming up. Right. It criminalizes that conduct to avoid uh, the kind of in- incitement of, of, of shredding 
right. uh, that appeared to have occurred at, at Arthur Anderson and the whole Enron, Enron mess. Thing. So sure. clearly, you, it, it, there are two tightropes, and and it is hard for companies, large and small, to get their heads around the issue of, well, wait a minute, you know, you're telling me on the one hand that there are certain rules of what I need to keep. On the other hand, you're telling me it's good for our company and it's good for anyone whose information we have to, when that information outlives its usefulness, to not keep it. So how do I sort all this out? And, and it gets kind of overwhelming. And I, I do compare it to people's garages. And as you say, <laughs> it though, exactly it's like not it. staring you in the face. You're not in your office with piles <laughs> of paper anymore, uh, unless you're a Luddite. You're not walking into your garage and tripping over things. But it, 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 the concept's the same in that uh, there's a lot of flammable uh, material. There, there are a lot of mementos that are really important. And if it, I compare it to a garage, if everything's just piled in one big mess, uh, you're not knowing what, 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 what is there that could cause liability uh, for, for your company or damage to individuals. Uh, you're also not able to get to what you need. A big driver for a lot of companies these days uh, it relates to litigation preparedness because a lot of companies have realized, oh, gee, the federal rules are now going to require that we send a lawyer to court early in a lawsuit, and that lawyer needs to know what our sources and formats of information is. Ouch! I don't even, you know, I don't know if any of uh, of us know that. Right. So there is there is much more dialogue going on uh, within companies and within uh, government agencies, large and small. Uh, and companies large and small about uh, all this whole set of issues which deal with electronic information management. There's a, a fellow at um, Chevron named uh, Rich Jackson who I appeared on a panel with in San Francisco in February, and he calls the the kind of the, the the winnowing down of all this email that we're all writing and receiving and keeping. He calls it the war on on, on unstructured data. It could easily be called the war on data. He, he, he tries to, he's working to push uh, on a company-wide basis people to put in databases and in other systems that can easily track what's there and sort it and search it, uh, keep that information for its uh, lifetime, but uh, not to uh, oversave uh, things that people are just writing, namely email for the most right, part. So right, and especially when people do email, they, and, and I, I've gotten better about this, but I notice how people are so flippant. They, they read it quick, they answer quick, they sometimes don't answer what you ask them. Do you know what I mean? Right. And, and, and they say things flippantly or they think it's kidding, but unfortunately it, you don't have the person's tone of voice, you don't have their face, right. so it can come across very different from the intent Absolutely. and very dangerous stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. One of my, my colleagues came up with a little mantra a few years ago, and I've changed it a bit over the years, and it, it, it's the writing for multiple audiences test, meaning you're really not just writing to one person. You could be writing it to any number of people. Right, and we world. call it the, <laughs> the green eggs and ham test, and it's something <laughs> like, uh, well, you, do, would, would you like it on your competitor's desk? Would you write, like to read it in the press? <laughs> would you like it in the government's hand, or would you like to read it on the witness stand? <laughs> and if the answer is no to any of those, you do not write it, Sam I am, and do not send it, <laughs> Sam I am, even if you write it. Uh, but the problem is people do, and and what you describe, which is the problem of a whole email string where there are a lot of different things being discussed, uh, that's a big issue as well. Uh, there's the, the email really is um, significant in that people are not just writing in the way you described, but they're also attaching files of all sorts yes. and sending them. Uh, uh, unencrypted. I mean, 
Right, unencrypted. And they're sending them and they're forwarding. Sometimes people are doing reply all. One issue that tends to shock a lot of lawyers uh, that, I, that I talk about a lot is, is metadata and what is in uh, a file that someone has, has taken. If it's a Word file or an office, any other Office file like PowerPoint or Excel, someone copies the file, edits it, or they do a file save as, but they don't scrub the metadata or don't take the metadata right. out in some way. Uh, there could be all kinds of information on uh, other individuals or other other clients, other customers. I think of in, in companies, I, I really urge clients to think about the legal department and the sales department. And even in a small company, think about any uh, document that you're attaching to an email or otherwise disseminating uh, metadata scrubbing software is very inexpensive, and it's a click or two, and you have cleared out uh, prior revisions as well as just sometimes just the original title, the the original title or even the right. original author of a file can give away something per, uh, personal about a customer. So, so let me ask you something. Would, would that be, yeah, would instead of if you don't have metadata scrubbing software, how about if you put it in a, if you change it to a PDF file? Does that does that clear that metadata out? Because well, that was going to be my next oh. uh, trick. Is that okay. when, when I go to these lawyer conferences and talk about metadata, uh, there's a, a fairly famous instance of someone uh, thinking uh, he or she, and this was at a big law firm, was uh, redacting or blacking out whole sections of a brief. It actually was in the the case against AT&T and Verizon about the sharing of uh, customer phone records with the National Security Administration. Oh, right, right. Uh, and it was not properly redacted. Someone used a, a, a word tool, I think the highlighting or the borders and shading tool. And if anyone out there wants a, a link to that brief, it's available on the web. It's linked from a CNET article. Oh. Uh, but when And then they PDF'd it. In other words, they didn't print it and scan it, but they used uh, Adobe oh. or some other conversion tool. Some of the metadata migrates, uh, the, the file name, and the underlying properties, some of them, the author, information like that does migrate to the PDF when you convert uh, using Adobe or some other uh, automated conversion tool. The other thing that, that migrated in this particular instance is that even though it looked like that text was blacked over, uh, I can right-click in that file over the supposedly blacked-out text and copy it just as I could out of any other PDF that was converted in that way. Wow. So a whole, there, there's a whole So the only other... way to do it with a PDF would be to print it and scan it and put it back in because then it wouldn't be there. Right. There are two ways to do it, and this actually touches on the e-filing issue you mentioned. Uh, actually, with e the advent of e-filing, now every federal court uh, has a required filing of PDFs, and typically the courts require uh, that the, the document be converted in an automated way so it remains searchable. And one key bit of, of information that needs to be redacted, uh, not in that NSA case, it was the, 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 the secret room that supposedly didn't exist that got talked about. But mm. uh, pretty much every federal court now has a, a local rule that says personally identifiable information needs to be redacted. Right. But if it's not redacted properly, and most of the courts also require that if you've got it converted in an automated way, it's got to be searchable. So you've got two choices. You, the only 100% surefire way is to, to, to print a paper, scan it, and then or run OCR or optical character recognition software uh, to, to take it back into the realm where it can be searched. But Microsoft actually, for Word files, for people who are not on Word Perfect but who are on Word, Microsoft has a redaction uh, plug-in, so to speak, that's available for free that works. 
Uh, Kevin Moore, who I mentioned earlier, who was our lead forensics person, and others here have tried to go into the bowels of a file with forensic tools, and they cannot find any remnants of redacted text. So you uh, have to. So you can use. go to um, Microsoft.com and download this. Yes, if you it's, have... a, it's called the. I believe it's called the Microsoft Redaction Tool. Oh. And you can, if you're a small company, uh, you can have each person go and download it. It, it, it then becomes a, a, a toolbar within Word, and it's a way to, to get part of the text out uh, and really get it out. And then uh, you can convert uh, to PDF uh, and being confident that that information you have eliminated. Uh, it's actually eliminated, and this has been a, a so a after you've let's say you've let's for me I do a lot of um, back and forth with with clients I you know I password protect it but if we're doing a let's say an agreement and we have all these track changes that we finally accept right right so so if we got that uh, Microsoft redaction and then after we've gotten all that we want and everybody's in agreement then. I could use that redaction tool and it'll get rid of everything for sure, and then I could put it in a well, PDF? Well, it, in a way, it's apples and oranges. I mean, oh. the, the approach with track changes is to actually accept or reject them one by one or all at once. Right. But then the, 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 the best thing to do is use a metadata scrubbing tool, and there, there are a couple ones available out there on an individual uh, user basis. Uh, they're very inexpensive. That will clear out all the remnants of the original title, original author, prior content, including track changes. The redaction is if you, you don't want the, the recipient to see something in the current version of the document. So that would be yet another uh, tool to use, but that one's free. Okay, okay. The, the metadata scrubbing software is really important, and with the volume of Office files, Word, Excel, and PowerPoint that are exchanged, and with the PDF uh, issues where some of the metadata migrates, track changes probably don't. Uh, but the, but some of the, the, the underlying properties of the document migrate, and there may be private information just in, the, in knowing that who someone else's client was or who that document was originally drafted for. And again, it comes up in, in your and my uh, role in life, which is a part to be lawyers, but it also comes up for any, think about any sales agreement or any right, other agreement right. between any company and a customer. So these are the kind of uh, educational issues and relatively very inexpensive software uh, that that companies should have, uh, no matter what what they are, or what size they are. You know, Robert, you're you're absolutely right. But just think about it. I mean, everybody who's trying to do their own business and trying to understand their their own work, and then not only do you have to understand the content of your own practice, if you're a lawyer, or the right. own, your own content of whatever it is that you're trying to do, whatever business you're doing. But then, if you don't have a, a full-time IT person to do this for you, right. you know, it, it really becomes a You know, a, it's a, a bear. I mean, expense. it's a bear even for uh, bigger companies. But the key things are uh, to, for, from the, um, the, the external world standpoint, if you have a small company, to, to have some, some uh, antivirus software and anti-spam software. Will it solve everything that could possibly harmful come into your to your, your, your world via the Internet and your, in your company? No, uh, because the spammers and the, the purveyors of malware and all that uh, Trojan, all that kind of stuff, are, uh, they're still coming up with new things all the time. But you are much, much more protected if you have a firewall, if you have virus and, and, and antivirus, anti-spam sure. software, yeah. if you have yeah. those three things. Then if you have um, 
uh, metadata scrubbing, you're, you're, you're way ahead, especially if you deal with a lot of agreements of any sort, a lot of Word files. Right. Uh, there also are things you can do in, in Adobe uh, or, and probably in other PDF uh, programs, and sometimes the metadata scrubbing software will do this for you. Uh, the, the, you can actually protect various uh, things about a PDF file uh, by going to the security settings within uh, Adobe, within Adobe Acrobat, whether it's standard or professional, not just the reader, but if you have standard or professional, you can right. preclude the, the recipient from printing. You could com- can preclude the recipient from deleting pages out of that PDF. There are a variety of things you can do with a few clicks. And yes, this is a lot to keep up with, uh, but some of these are tools that almost everyone's using all the time, and there are there, there are these protections that are, that are in there that aren't perfect, but they're better than the alternative. Uh, another issue with FACTA is uh, that if if you're if someone has a small store or a large store, doesn't matter what size, or or in is, is in, in any environment where they are printing out uh, a receipt for with for credit card payment uh, from uh, uh, in an automated way. Uh, FACTA also, one of the requ- other requirements in it, that's the one where we talked about the hammer or the wiping utilities uh, on data whose, or, or paper whose life uh, time is over. Another thing in FACTA is uh, that you can't, you're not supposed to put whole credit card numbers and the like on, on, a, on a receipt. Truncation. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and that, I, there, there are actually some lawsuits. Uh, that I've been reading about where, where I was an expert witness on that. Were you? Yeah, okay. actually well, then you for know and better than I do. Yeah, yeah. What happened was um, most of these companies who've been sued for violations of the truncation provision of FACTA um, had redacted all but the last four or five numbers, which was correct, but they failed to redact the expiration date. And the interesting thing about that is I'm usually so pro-consumer, but in this case, I actually was very much on the side of the retailers because the expiration date, believe it or not, makes no difference. And I proved it in my in my uh, expert declaration, which I had to write three of them so far, um, which was basically that when you put in an expiration date in the future, as long as it's in the future, it doesn't matter. In other words, it doesn't it does not authorize or not authorize. So I did a test with my husband's credit cards and in it we put the the correct uh credit card number but the wrong expiration date in the future and they in it processed as an exact match both on his MasterCard and his Visa. But it, but I do want to say that you should be redacting the expiration date as well as all but the last four numbers. That's what you should be doing. But um, Lloyd is saying we're getting close, huh? Okay. I want to just introduce you again, too. We're speaking with Robert Brownstone, who is the Law and Technology Director at Fenwick & West LLP, a law firm up in Silicon Valley. We don't have a lot of time, but Robert, I want you to tell us um, what about one of the things that irks me or I really worry about for my uh, clients who are companies is outsourcing. What what do you think and what do you advise your clients when they're outsourcing? And you only got a couple of minutes. So. Okay. Well, in, in, in all the same uh, arenas we've talked about in the, the information management, whether it's for discovery preparedness or retention or destruction or information security, uh, remember, I talked about a questionnaire and about a set of best practices, a chronology. One of the things we always mention is 
in, in our initial questions and in our recommendations is are you hosting your email system? Are you hosting uh, all your, your, your databases or is someone else? And if someone else is, then all the recommendations that we make to you about how long to keep information, how to destroy it, uh, whether to uh, stop uh, a destruction process of a lawsuit's pending, you need to make sure that all that is communicated on a regular basis uh, to the company to whom you outsource information. So we regularly go through uh, Q&A with our clients on everywhere that, that their data resides, not just in, in, the, in their four walls, not just on their network, but wherever it is, uh, and talk to them about uh, what, they, what they do. And sometimes it's very interesting uh, with clients or prospective clients, uh, once you start following that trail, uh, it does become clear that, that everything isn't in sync. When I talked earlier about syncing up policies, uh, I wasn't just thinking, okay, there's a technology use policy and a retention policy and the like within a company, but th- there's certain requirements that need to be uh, synced up with anyone uh, to whom you delegate uh, your, your storage duties. And, in fact, the federal rules of civil procedure now, as of December 1 of last year, requ- in effect require uh, that any uh, company that outsources data storage has to uh, monitor uh, and make sure that, that, that all these electronic information issues are as in, as in sync as they can be, uh, not just within their company, but with the companies to whom they outsource. Right, and it's scary enough when you outsource in this country, but then when you're outsourcing to India or Jamaica or Argentina or something, it, it, it is really a challenge. Do you write uh, contracts with indemnity clause with these outsourced to I other countries? Per- I don't personally do that. Um, but your firm probably does, right? Uh, I, 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 I don't know off the top of my head, but I know that the, the issues are, are much more complicated uh, when you deal with any, uh, uh, any companies overseas. As, you, as I'm sure you know, in terms of privacy of information, the EU rules right. are much more protective of the individuals uh, than, than the U.S. Uh, uh, laws are, uh, and in terms of what kind of coming full circle to what what I spend almost all my time on, and what my IT and law colleagues here in the group I'm in spend our time on. I mean, the whole genesis of what we do was that we wanted to uh, protect uh, our clients' information and everything in it uh, really carefully. So we brought in-house, uh, in effect, IT storage services. We have the most robust set of extranet sites. Uh, probably of any law firm there is, and we uh, have committed to making sure that we, we've got uh, every possible uh, best practice in place for information security. We've handled a lot of mergers and acquisitions. We've handled lawsuits about trade secrets and intellectual property. Uh, we really pushed ourselves okay. as a firm uh, to try to do that here so that we wouldn't have have the client send all this information to right. us and say, okay, now we're going to farm out all this and some uh, Robert, we're going to have to go, yeah. Provider's going to host it for you. We're Ra- going to do it. L- Lloyd <laughs> is saying that we're going to have to go. Okay. We could talk for hours. You're That's wonderful. Right. So we just give us your website, and then we're going to have to go, and we'll get you back on www.fenwick.com. Okay, then they can learn all about what well, the great things you're doing. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Okay, Take care you, now. You too. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. 
And you've been listening to Robert Brownstone, an attorney with Fenwick and West LLP. Thank you for joining us. Please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Write us an email and please visit with us on every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. Thank you, Lloyd, and thank you, everybody, for listening. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.